And once that dragon wakes up, you have to learn how to tame it because it's part of you. And it can either be your greatest enemy or your greatest friend. If you don't tame it, it'll tear you apart. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. Buckle up for this one, guys, especially if you're a music lover. Today's guest is Elu. He began his career as Eric Lewis, a jazz pianist performing alongside Wynton Marsalis and Elvin Jones. A decade into his career, he reemerged as Elu and began fusing his piano skills with modern pop and rock music, generating a new genre of music, rock jazz. Over the course of multiple albums, Elu has re-energized songs by Coldplay, Michael Jackson, The Killers, Leonard Skinner, to name a few. My intro to this incredible artist was totally random. I was at the Apple Store at the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica, just looking around, shopping, and you know how they have tutorials at the Apple Store sometimes in the back? Well, on this particular evening, they had a live musician. But I wasn't paying attention, even though there was a bit of a crowd around him, until I heard this incredible sound coming from the piano. And I looked back, and this guy is standing, sweating, and hammering away at the strings inside the piano. And then he starts playing the keys, but intermittently going back inside the piano and plucking and hammering away. And I didn't recognize what song he was playing at first. And then it started to sound familiar. And all of a sudden, I went, holy shite, that's Nirvana. He was playing Smells Like Teen Spirit on a grand piano in such a unique way. I literally stopped what I was doing. I went back and started recording him on my phone. And then he started telling his story to the crowd in between songs and how he came to play like this. And I was mesmerized. So I stuck around. I went up to him afterward and I said, I can't believe I'm doing this, but I'm amazed I've got this podcast. I love your story. Do you have a card or something like that? Had no idea how huge he was. That was probably, I don't know, two years ago, year and a half ago. Anyway, went back and forth with his manager because he and I kept on being on opposite coasts. And then finally, we just decided to do this over Zoom during COVID. I'm really excited for you all to hear him. So what I didn't know that night was that he has built an elite fan base of celebrities, people like Leonardo DiCaprio, Gerard Butler, Will Smith, Halle Berry, Terry Crews, the list goes on. He's composed music for films, written screenplays, directed, DJed. He does speaking engagements for Fortune 100 companies and luxury brands like Google, Fendi, Disney, Mercedes-Benz. I mean, he's a, a really a, a, a dynamo. And during COVID, when we recorded... He was under stay-at-home orders, like the rest of us. He was in L.A., but he was performing for audiences online around the world continuously, refusing to pause his art. In contrast, what I was doing during my stay-at-home orders was pooping a lot, much to the chagrin of my family. Thank God I had poopery. If you don't know what poopery is, I'm about to tell you. You may or may not have guessed by now that they are today's sponsor. I'm pretty proud of that little segue there. Okay, here's how poopery works. 
You spray the bowl before you go, and a layer of essential oils traps bathroom odor before it begins. It's pretty brilliant. It actually works. It's guaranteed. It's available in a variety of scents and sizes so that every bathroom is stocked. They've got a new hand sanitizer that kills 99.9% of germs in 15 seconds. They're giving 10% of their profits to Texas charities, and additional quantities are being donated to medical professionals in need. And... How does this all work for you? Well, because you are a listener on this show, you can use the code DELNEGRO15 for 15% off your order of $25 or more on poopery.com at checkout. And that will save you from getting your family uh, out of your house. Although maybe at this point, you're ready to have your family out of your house, so you don't want to get poopery. I don't know. Um... Listen, if you dig this show, please share it with your friends, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts so more people can hear stories like Elu's and be inspired. He's a true artist. He lives and breathes music. You'll hear him sing. You'll hear him tapping out beats. He can't help himself. And his passion is infectious. Just incredible soliloquies about art and music. And it's worth pointing out, note how he really listens and considers what I'm asking him before he replies. It's pretty special. And I think it's one of the ingredients that makes him such a unique artist. Okay, enough gushing. Let's let the real dude do the talking. Here he is, Elu. And at a round table later on, like during some kind of big lunch in a hall, the kids were asking me some questions casually. And someone... One of these kids, I remember, I'll never forget his face. He was like this. He's obviously grown up now, so I'll never know who he is. But it was this blonde kid. He had like a very prep school kind of look about him. But he was asking me about, you know, what drives me or what am I into or something like that. And I said, you know, I'm I'm looking for this intense kind of thing that, will really just allow me to like pour out my energies and stuff. And so that's like the hardest thing. I'm trying to figure out how to do that. And then he said, you should check out Lincoln Park. <laughs> to which I said, what, what did you say? Lincoln, what is it? Link what? Lincoln Park. To which I said, oh, is that like rock or something like that? And he said, yeah, yeah, it's a rock band. To which I said, well, I mean, you know, I've heard rock before. You know, I mean, I want something like really intense, though, to which he said, Lincoln Park. <laughs> and I remember believing that energy that he conveyed to me in that way that he responded to me with that simple two word sentence, Lincoln Park. And so I remember going to Tower Records when Tower Records still exists at Lincoln Center. 66th Street, Broadway, New York, walking in and finding that bin and then flipping through and trying to decide which one I wanted to pick up. And I saw this one beautiful cover with this kid with a spray paint can and said Meteora. I said, all right, I guess I'll try this one out. <laughs> Life changed. Right you know, there, you know so it's, that's oh, go on. Sorry. So that's the answer to the first question. 
as far as the second question with regards to you, you said something about what pulled me out of the depression. What was it exactly? Yeah. Just that it seems like you maybe were stuck or knocked down or something, something wasn't working for you. And then right. you got this new challenge that you imposed on yourself. Right. And it sounds like it, it breathed new life into you. And I'm just curious as to, you know, is that true? That's my impression. And, and got, if so, okay, kind of how you, did yeah. it happen? You know? Okay, sure. Okay, so basically, I was having very intense panic attacks, and then I was having very intense depressions where it felt like there was, you know, it's just anyone who's had like intense depression knows the feeling of you feel like a little pinholes in your stomach, and then the pinhole starts widening and becomes alarmingly big, and then you feel like you're going to just spill your guts all over the place or you want to get sucked into a black hole, you know, then maybe, or you have a panic attack. It feels like there's a lion sitting in the room, but it's invisible and you can't see it. The first time that happened to me, I called the ambulance. I thought I was dying, all that stuff. Anybody who's been through that stuff, they, this is nothing new for them, but these are the, it's just very typical stuff. Obviously at the time I didn't know what was going on. So I'm freaking out and all of that stuff. And then you start yo-yoing, you try to come out of the panic attack and try to relax. And, and then you get this like very calm sensation as your brain kind of cools out, but then you're getting calmer and calmer. And then you start feeling that little pinhole and then you're starting to get a little too calm. And then the hole's getting bigger and next thing you know, you're like, wait a minute, I don't want to, I don't want to die. I, I want to wake up, you know, you, you know, so you get trapped in this cycle of either heavy panic or trying to keep yourself from drifting off into the abyss, right? Eventually, thanks to rock, I would discover that all that had happened was what I like to refer to as my dragon woke up inside of me. And there's people who describe this different ways, but this is my way of describing it, which is that, you know, this, you could say power dragon part of me woke up. And once that dragon wakes up, you have to learn how to tame it because it's part of you. And it can either be your greatest enemy or your greatest friend. If you don't tame it, it'll tear you apart. It'll pull you into the abyss. But if you get over the fact that you have this other thing happening inside of you and go ahead and challenge it, fight it back, you can actually end up harnessing it and you can teach it that you're good for it too. And then you can start to capitalize on its power. And so the simplicity of that rock, the power of that rock, when that came into my ears and into my gut and my consciousness and my heart and the simplicity of it, the lyrics were so simple. I'm a very lyric driven person. You know, in jazz, there were lyrics like, tunes like, picture you upon my knee, 
Just T for two and two for T. Just me for you and you for me alone. So a lot of the jazz repertoire, lyrically speaking, is comprised of tunes that came from classic movies of the golden age of Hollywood. They come from classic Broadway shows. And let's keep in mind, the censors at that time would not really allow people to make lyrics that were too psychologically challenging. Let's say the subject matter was very different from what it is now. So I was hungry and not even aware of how hungry I was for some lyrics and some powerful music being put together. So I had the powerful music. So I thought with Coltrane and Elvin Jones and McCoy Tyner, the classic group, Jimmy Garrison on bass, but there were no lyrics, but the energy was there. So then with Lincoln Park, there's a change in the groove, a change in the rhythms because it's a rock beat as opposed to a jazz beat. But the intensity was there, but the lyrics were what I needed. Like I said, crawling in my skin, these wounds, they will not heal. Fear is how I fall, confusing what is real. I love those lyrics. And combined with the music, suddenly it turned out there was a whole genre for people just like me, people who were depressed, people who were having a panic crisis. It was built for me. And so I felt like I had discovered heaven, basically. And I've had this sort of de facto energy team that I could refer to. And when, and when I tried to play that stuff on piano, because one part of me thought that I had some musical elitism going on. And when I tried to play that stuff on piano in the most honest and pure way, it was hard. It took, it ended up taking like two or three years for me to absorb enough technique to actually play that stuff true to the power of it. Because there had been some other attempts in jazz to perform rock tunes. And they had gotten record deals and publicized and stuff like that. And when I listened to it, I thought, well, is this what rock is? I mean, it just sort of sounds like semi-classical music with a semi-jazz beat going on. So I just blew it all off. But when I actually took rock into my heart for myself and then started working on my own personalized version of it with the goal of being true to the hardcore aspects of it, true to the difficulties and the energy of it, and exploring that, that's when suddenly I was like, whoa, this is what rock is. This is rocking. Oh, okay. No wonder I didn't like it. No wonder I had all these thoughts about it, these biases. Oh, I didn't really experience the real stuff here. And so that was the beginning of a journey that 
took me around the world. It gave me my own career as Elu. It was, it took me around another set of people and it took me into another level of mastery of the piano and expressing myself through the instrument. And it, it gave me a way to implement, as my great master Elvin Jones would say, it gave me a way to implement all the fire and power of my inner dragon. And so suddenly the dragon inside of me was less interested in trying to eat me inside out. It got more interested in, hey, what are you going to feed me today? To which I'm like, I got plenty to feed you. <laughs> you know, hey, let's check out Pantera. Hey, let's check out Metallica. Hey, let's check out Megadeth. Hey, let's check out Judas Priest. Hey, let's check out Tool. Hey, let's check out Avenged Sevenfold. Hey, let's check out Mammoth. Hey, let's check out Trivium. Hey, let's check out Mudvayne. You know, it was endless. It's and such every you know, time I was hearing, you know, the dragon was loving it. So that's how I got healed from depression. It, it's and everything inverted itself. Instead of feeling like a black hole was sucking me in, that black hole got projected out to the rock. Instead of feeling like a lion is in the room going to eat me up, I ended up mounting the lion and looking for who we can eat up together yeah. musically. I love the way so, you put that. It's awesome. I love the way you put it. There's so many things sparking in me. One, I identify with it because my path into acting was similar, where I was out of the country. I was in college. I was on my own. I was going through something, and I had the same thing. Panic attacks uh, came on unexpectedly, and luckily I had a journal and I poured myself into that journal and I had the exact same, the way you described it was so beautifully articulate, but that's what it was. It was like this other person in me that was going to just strang like choke me out unless I could put it out on the page and, mm -hmm. and turn it into something. And, and it's so similar. I love the way you articulated it. I, it's beautiful with with the dragon and 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 going out and like mounting the lion and going out and and getting things feeding the beast really, um, and I'm also just so I, I don't know what the word is moved or impressed or just uh, inspired by your humility because so many people that I come across um, they they define themselves by however society is is seeing them or however they've seen themselves and they put themselves in a box and they don't let themselves out and you could see them starting to wilt and what you did and and I love your honesty in saying like you were snobbish about it. I get that I get all that and yet you had the humility to say, okay, yeah, I'm a maestro. I'm, I'm playing with the best in the world right now in this genre, but I'm going to go, I'm going to go on, on, you know, this other court and I'm going to go play with these guys and see if I can, if I'm really that good, I'm going to put myself to the test and see if I can go play in their game. And you did it. Mo most people don't, I, I find 
most people don't have the the courage to go do that when they've already got something. Like you already had something. You were, you know, by all yeah. societal views, it was great for you. And yet you took the chance and now you kind of found this whole new version. I just, I, I'm really, I'm inspired by it. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I want to, I kind of want to ask you like, like how young were you when you took to music and what were the influences? Were your parents musicians? Were you in a, in a, an, an area where there was music around you early? Was there something that sparked it? What was the origin story for you in the first place? Well, I come from a, a single mother situation. And that being said, my mother and my father were musicians. And music is four generations deep in my family, definitely on my mother's side. I grew up in Camden, New Jersey, which is sometimes a murder capital. And the thing is, though, I grew up probably, well, I did some research and the house that I grew up in was built by a lumber mogul way back when Camden, New Jersey was actually an affluent place. This is way back. This is early 1900s. So the house I grew up in is a Victorian house built by a lumber mogul. And it was a society kind of house. And I grew up listening to my great piano lessons. We had four pianos in the house. It was that big. It is that big. And so the whole neighborhood would come to take piano lessons. And my earliest memories of hearing piano music was my great-grandmother, Granny Carlene Pugsley, teaching her star pupil how to play Chopin's A-flat Polonaise. It was this piece that sounded like, dun, 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 dun. And so I would wake up on Saturday mornings hearing that because the music room where she taught that student was right under my bed. And so those are that I basically grew up in a, a neighborhood or you could say a ghetto music school. And so from there, you know, I was taught by my great grandmother and my mother, who was a classical flutist. She ended up getting a doctorate in classical flute from um, Temple and Combs College of Music in Philly. Philly is like 15 minutes across the bridge from where I live. So I grew up in a classical music household. I never really listened to it on album, but I was always practicing it. That was my trade. Other than that, it was regular school and listening to Power 99 FM when we were driving around. My mother would do different things with the Philadelphia Orchestra here and there and other pickup orchestras and stuff. But I come from that kind of a space. As far as the subject matter that we're talking about, that fast forward, fast forwards things way up to after I've gotten a full scholarship to Manhattan School of Music, a top conservatory, and I've graduated Dean's List. And then right after graduation, I'm doing world tours. And then I'm touring with the biggest, most elite 
names in jazz. I'm touring with Wynton Marsalis. I'm recording five albums with him, Cassandra Wilson, on HBO specials, hanging out with the people as they're filming Matrix, not knowing that Matrix is going to be this huge movie. We're in Australia. They came to the gig. I'm talking to Lawrence Fishburne. He's like, yeah, yeah, we're working on this movie. It's kind of like got some Kung Fu. And I'm like, well, that sounds interesting. You know, the Matrix. You know, so... I went through all of these experiences all through my 20s, you know, post-graduation. And then usually people start getting panic attacks when they're around, you know, like mid, late 20s. So I caught mine right around 25. That's when I started really catching it. And it was a frightening experience and disturbing and crippling. And I ended up quitting everything. I quit Winton. I quit every band so because i had to just like i just had to stop everything and try to go to war with, with myself following that i turned around and i won that 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 this happened like 98 like fall winter of 98 and then i was out of work the beginning of 99 and then the fall of 99 I entered and won the biggest piano competition in jazz in the world. And I won it. Thelonious Monk International Piano Competition. Herbie Hancock was one of my judges. So then from there, that was the beginning of me learning how to wield my dragon and everything. And so the rock element refined this understanding of the dragon and stuff, you know, serve the, the basic survival of the panic and the depression and just the willingness to fight that caused me to win this big competition, which led me to getting hired by John Coltrane's former drummer, Elvin Jones. Now that was like the sorcerer and the sorcerer's apprentice relationship. And so for two years, I traveled the world. He taught me about, everything and i was able to just learn so much about how to be a master what it meant what it is all that kind of thing what what would you say is like one of the biggest i mean that's a that's a you know a very wide open question but if there if you could boil it down you can't i know but for the purposes of a you know short ish conversation what what sure. would be the biggest thing you walked away from elvin with what what, what was if if you could distill it Well, here's what I said at his funeral. And it became famous. I just kind of came up with it at the moment. But it is something that I will always feel. You know, playing with Elvin felt like trying to light a match in a hurricane and the emotional challenge and the challenge of maturity that one felt playing with him was similar to trying to push a refrigerator with a toothpick in your hand, you know? So that's what it felt like with him 
that's the quality of the experience of the challenge of trying to rise to the occasion with him. He challenged, uh, okay, and I'll tell you this, this, this was the most, one of the most sharpest memorable experiences that I had with him. And it was the first time I performed with him. See, what happened was their piano player had gotten fired. His piano player, his wife fired his piano player. And my good buddy, Steve Kirby, was playing bass with him in Europe. And I had just won this big competition. And and it just so happened that there was another competition winner in there, Darren Barrett, who was playing trumpet. And so Steve recommended me to Elvin. And so Elvin said, okay. And so then Steve sent me a cassette tape of the music. So I had to learn the music. Then there was a plane ticket to go to Poland. So I said, okay. So off I went like a few, few weeks later. And then I met Elvin, you know, for the first time as a actual bandmate. I had met him before a couple of times just as a fan, but now I'm sitting in his backstage area, like, you know, hello, Eric. And so, you know, that's what's going on. And so then, you know, we have sound check and then it's time to play. So we hit the stage, we start playing and everything's going great because I'm a huge McCoy Tyner aficionado. This is the piano player that Elvin recorded with with John Coltrane, among other things. And so I know all of McCoy's moves and I know all these ways that McCoy would set Elvin up to do the stuff that Elvin and everyone loves Elvin to do, you know, much more so than the one before him, actually, much more so than the pianist before him, who was more of a Herbie Hancock sort of player. But the relationship between Herbie and Elvin musically was different from McCoy and Elvin because obviously McCoy was with Elvin and the Coltrane band. And so they had their whole give and go patterns and things, just different styles. But I knew that I was a McCoy specialist. So I'm playing all this stuff and it's really cool. And this is like, I'm like, man, this is, <laughs> there's Elvin. I'm doing this. Uh, oh yeah. But one thing happened that I'll never forget. In addition to playing with, you know, Elvin, or, or in addition to being a fan of the McCoy-Elvin connection, I had been doing some work with Wynton Marsalis, and I was a big fan of the Wynton Marsalis, Jeff Tane Watts. He's the drummer with Wynton on some of these classic records of his connection. So I knew of all of Jeff Tane Watts' moves. Now, the thing with Tane and Wynton they have a different sort of emotional culture that they were playing from, which has to do with trickery a little bit. Sometimes they would kind of like be like people on a basketball court, kind of trying to psych you out or spin you around or fake you out and stuff like that. So I knew a bunch of those fake out moves as well. So we're on stage. And so I got comfortable because everything's going great. So I decide, Oh, let me see what happens if I do a fake out move and basically the concept here is that if you think of a series of numbers of one, two, three, four, if you think of that series of numbers, one, two, three, four, that's how we count music. One, two, three, four. Now there's a way during the improvisational process to place emphasis 
or emphasize emphasis emphasis I think it's emphasize. <laughs> Either way, whatever that word is, there's a way to organize your accents within that group of numbers to imply that instead of sounding like you're doing one, two, three, four, it can sound like you've added a fifth ghost beat to that series, which would then, if you do one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, suddenly everything's is off kilter and it jumps the cadence, the, the expectation points jump. You've, you've switched up the hypnosis repetition. Now that's a fake out. That's a trick because then while it seems as though you've made a mistake and messed up the trance, in fact, it's just an effect in the hands of a person that actually knows how to do it. You haven't lost yourself. You're just breaking free of the trance so as to broaden the possibilities. And then you come back in over here. You know, it's, it's just the same as a person on high wire that, acts like they just they're about to lose their balance and all that and so the audience is like but in fact that's all part of the routine that's a whole chop that's a whole technique to even look like you're losing your balance it takes muscles and a whole thing to control that and and to be able to do that without actually losing your balance so i would did one of those routines on elvin the thing is elvin heard me doing that and he thought that I actually got lost. And he so gently, you know, I was used to people, you know, trying to embarrass me on stage and stuff like that. But Elvin so smoothly and gently turned the whole beat around. He, he adjusted the whole march, the whole numeric series to account for what he thought was a mistake of mine. But then I refaked it and corrected back into the original series. But now Elvin was offbeat now. So when he realized what happened in a flash, he looked up at me from across the stage in Poland. I would have been 27 years old or so. Yeah, 20, let's see, I wanted 20. No, I would have been 26. And he looked across the stage at me. And it was as if all of the music stopped. Nothing existed in all of the world but Elvin's eyes looking at me. He never said anything. He never talked about it. But I will never forget that look he gave me. Because the look was telling me, is that what you do with music? Is that who you are? I, as, 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 as legendary, immortal, epic as Elvin is, for my stupid ass, young ass, he turned the whole beat around to save me so that I wouldn't look stupid. He didn't clown me. 
He went to save me, to help me. As massive and gargantuan and authoritarian as he could have been. But no, he came off of that high pedestal, that place of immortality, that pantheon, to help my stupid ass out. And there I was having played possum crying wolf. Now I'm back to where the correct place was. And he's the one that's exposed out there. And he looked at me, that look was the look of, you're, you just, this is who you are. Is, is this who you want to be? Because you just showed me that you're not the type of person that will come off of your pedestal to help out your brother. Yeah. I mean, there was so, it, I could wow. go on. There, there's just so much in that look that he gave me. I'll never forget that it cut me, it impaled me through my heart, through my spine like a butterfly pinned to a piece of paper. I'll never forget that. That was the first lesson on the first night of my two-year journey with that master. That was lesson number one. This ain't a game. We, I'm going to teach you how to be an actual man and how to actually play this music. Right there, he taught me that being a master, being great, has very little to do with the 12 hours that you practice, although we all do that, but it has very little to do that. There's a conscious choice, and it's character-driven. Given the advantage, given the knowledge you have, what shall you do with it? How will you implement it? And when he showed me by implementing that fake out like that, he said, I mean, that look was saying to me, so do you have any more? You've gotten to the top of the mountain. You've just started with me. You know, you've come here wanting to know how to be a master. Well, that's how you be a master. Now, are you ready for lesson two? Oh this, is, this is only day one. I love this story. One, I love the, the intricacy and and I know you're probably dumbing it down for me too, because there it's probably so much more specific in your head how you see music and how but I love the intricacy of your take on being out there performing. What's going on that the audience has no idea is going on. And that's the beauty. And I and I have parallels of it in what I do. Mm-hmm. Um but to hear that from you who I've seen and heard play and know just you are amazing. And then to hear that from, you know, the master that you put on this pedestal to, to hear just to, to hear that conversation that behind the scenes is is incredible to me. And then also, again, the humility that he had to do that and also the questioning of like. Yeah, you got all this power, you got all these skills, you work your ass off. You're great, kid, but like for for what? Like what what's it all for? It sounds like he taught you, you know, more about being 
almost like more as much about being a human as about being an artist and a performer. And it's, it's a beautiful story. And you're so like the way you phrase it, I, I, uh, I just feel like I'm, I'm on for the ride. I love it. We are supported by Poopery. If you got to go, but you don't want the whole house to know you just went, you know what I'm talking about. Come on, fess up. That's why we have Poopery. Simply spray the bowl before you go and a layer of essential oils chaps bathroom odor before it begins. Sound crazy? Sure. But guess what? It works. In fact, they guarantee it. It's available in a variety of scents and sizes so that every bathroom is stocked. And now Poopery offers hand sanitizer too, a moisturizing blend of coconut and lavender that kills 99.9% of germs in 15 seconds. But it's not just about the bathroom odor. Here's why I love it and endorse it. Poopery liberates everyone from toxic thoughts and ingredients, not just the product, the company. That's their mantra. They do so much more for their community. 10% of profits are being donated to Texas charities and additional quantities are being donated to medical professionals in need. And now for 10,000 Nose listeners, you can use code DelNegro15 for 15% off your next order of $25 or more when you check out at poopery.com. Again, that code is DelNegro15. And now back to the show. Do you think he realized what a big moment it was for you as well or not even? <laughs> well, the thing with Elvin, he was this massive figure full of knowledge, full of things to give. So basically, I'm sure he was aware of it, but what was so impactful about that is the fact that he showed me how petty my pursuit was in one sense meaning in the nonverbal energy world there's things that we are looking for we're looking for a capacity and ability to convey and be that artist be an immortal like the immortals that we idolize, aspire to be. And sometimes it feels as though, well, if there's just this one nugget, this one element, what is it that I'm missing? What is this one piece? I've done the diligence. I've given blood and sweat and tears, the meat of my flesh to this instrument. I am devoted. There is nothing I would not sacrifice. Nothing shall deter me. Nothing will get in my way. I will study. I will pour over the books. I will learn the recordings. There's nothing I will not do. What am I lacking? It's kind of like Thor, you know? Thou art lacking in humility. Yeah. He had to, Thor got separated from the meal near, and he had to come down and learn something. And it had everything, everything to do with character, you know? And so... That was, but, but my point is that in my mind, whatever, because of the hubris, the ego, you could say, I like hubris better, that I thought there was just this one thing that I was lacking. And if I could just figure out what this one thing was, this technical thing, then all of Pangea would be mine, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah. But in fact, 
when that moment happened with Elvin, it shattered two myths. <laughs> First of all, it shattered that the myth that there was some mechanical thing that I was missing. The technique was fine. You're just a, a horrible teammate. You know, really counts. I can't trust you. You play games with things that shouldn't be played with. You're playing games with something that should not be played game with, played a game with. And then, oh, by the way, as far as the mechanics, my friend, you see that mountain over there? You've got a, a ton of mechanics to learn, my friend. You, you think that what you know is sufficient? No. That's why I said later on at his funeral, like a few years later, I said, I came to discover trying to play with him was like trying to light a match in a hurricane, trying to push a refrigerator with a toothpick because that's how massive the knowledge and the levels of information that I had to learn, you know, were. So it's like a lot of delusions got shattered in that one look. I ended up having to ask him questions every day to learn how to play. And then I'd try it out. I'd practice all day, go to the bandstand. I'd play, and then I'd demonstrate that I had absorbed it. And then he's like, ah. And non-verbally, he'd do something and show me this other twist on it. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> and then I, yeah. the next day... I take the twist and I practice the twist all day and I come back to the bandstand and then he'd twist it again. We'd have dinner. I'd say, whoa, and talk about that. Then I practice that. And that was our life. That was the routine for two years. So looking back on it at his funeral, I realized, man, it was massive. So then this whole thing that I've talked about with the rock thing was yet even another shock because on top of all that mountain of information, there was yet another mountain of information for me to learn. This time from a very unlikely source. However, the experience with Elvin prepared me to have that humility to hear this little blonde prep school kid tell me, this maestro, you should check out Lincoln Park. Lincoln Park, man. You know? Yeah. And so... The, the legacy of that look, that, that humbling moment, Pat, you know, found its way to that point there. Yeah. You know, the, the, the thing with, the thing with the rock was that, you know, during, you know, during the Elvin phase, I was able to work through, or he was there for me as a father figure to kind of help me through my internal struggles or just kind of distract me from it. After I left him, I went back to Winton for a year to, you know, try to accrue some bread. And, you know, I was doing a lot of chess playing. I was a chess gambler, chess hustler in New York <laughs> during all this stuff. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I was always a man of my word and I would always pay my debts. And so, you know, at a certain point with Elvin, I was starting to get, you know, I put in two years and I 
the, the business side of things became like a little topsy-turvy because, you know, they told me that I was going to get a Yamaha endorsement deal and, you know, all these kinds of things, but it wasn't happening. And, and you know, a lot of times these band leaders, if they have a good side man, they want to keep the side man. And usually if the side man is really happy to be that side man, then everything's cool. But I've always had an ambition side to me. And so I wanted to be an Elvin or be a Coltrane, not just perform alongside them. So that's the price that I pay. That's you know how I felt. So I moved on. I went back with Winton's band, um, high profile band, top paying band in jazz. And so I, you know, use that to knock out my chest debts and stuff. And then at the end of that rainbow, I was turning 30 and I still hadn't gotten a record deal or anything like that. And I was kind of feeling like, well, it's now or never. I've got to like try to make some moves here to like carve out my own career as an artist at at like another level. Nobody's with me. And so you know, I was feeling again that depression and that kind of panic and kind of upset. And still that thing inside of me wasn't being completely fed that dragon. Mm-hmm. That's where the Lincoln Park thing comes in. Because when that happened, it blew open all of the doors and it set in motion a spectacular career <laughs> that was laying in front of me from through my thirties, you know? Yeah. I, I, I just, there's so many, so many things about your story that I love. I'm going to just withhold and I'll talk about them in the, in the outro or I'll talk about you because I, I, I really feel like I, so many of the things you're saying are, uh, so I, I just identify with them, this idea that, yeah, you have these, you, you have these, these moments where it's like things go into hyperspace. You, you have a real down, you somehow get through it. You have a ton of growth and you think, oh, I've, oh, okay. Yeah. This is what it's about. And then there's another peak in the distance and you get to that peak and you're like, whew, I can't get up that peak using the same tools that got me up this peak. So mm-hmm. if I really want to climb, I got to learn a new set. And and that's what your experience exemplifies. Um, there was one other thing, actually, I wanted to just add in that I think you get a kick out of from an actor perspective. When I started checking out Lincoln Park and getting into that kind of expression, something else happened and it had to do with the way that I was hearing actors speak and improvise and talk with one another on screen. I started to be able to hear the, the art. I started to be able to hear the music in the speaking, I started to be able to hear those little micro ecstasies that we all experience in the process of making the art. I started to be able to hear the actors playing 
inside of their roles, I started to be able to notice the craftsmanship the same way I could hear it in a musician. So like you're mentioning the audience, certainly there's members of the audience that are just enjoying the general show. They're enjoying the music from a certain kind of space. That's we could, we could call it superficial, but I don't mean that in a pejorative way. They're enjoying sound for sound's sake. Right. Then there are those that are a little more initiated into the intricacies and the difficulties behind what's going on. They're the people that are in the audience. Like, wait a minute. Like, I I know you enjoyed that. Do you understand what you just saw? Do you understand how hard that is? So those type of people are getting another kind of high off of it because they can appreciate, dude, that is unbelievable. You know, this is why, Okay, look, look, man. For, okay, it's really try to do this with your hand. They, they would do it, you know, things of that nature. So I started to become one of those people with the world of theater. I f- was able to start noticing what they're. I could hear. I could track the energy. I could hear the. I could hear how the director and the editor we're putting things together and what they were queuing in on and the timing and all these kinds of things that seem intangible or that seem intuitive in which were probably far more deliberate. And so the, the deliberacy I started to um, spaz on like, Whoa, they deliberately did that. Like I started to get it. And so a whole different, basically, you know, I'm seeing the matrix kind of a kind of a thing. And so that all kind of came alongside the rock experience, because in rock, a lot of times the vocalists, you know, they are not coming from a conservatory perspective. They're coming from a different perspective. So sometimes they're mixing in their own actual speaking voice with the music and since the bias was out of me because of my emotional needs it's like i don't care about the conservatory stuff i need something that's going to make me feel better and so i'm getting it from these rockers so then the biases that would have blocked me or caused me to blow off how they're mixing music with spoken atonal vocal delivery started making its way into my consciousness, which then caused me to notice it in the pure speaking of an actor. So suddenly everything, you know? Yeah, no, you're making me think, and and now we're really geeking out on this, so we're going to probably lose half the crowd, and and half right. the crowd's going to love this, which which is fine by me. So which we're is talking your, about. Exactly. You're making me think of... One of my first teachers in New York, this guy, Terry Schreiber, he, I remember him talking about Richard III, and he was saying, you know, mm-hmm. his, his opinion of E. McClellan had just come out with something, and I forget what, if it was just called Richard III, or it was another name to the film. And then Pacino came out with Looking for Richard. And, mm-hmm. and I remember Terry saying, you know, 
and this is a, a, a gross overstatement, so I'm not trying to offend you know, sure. the Brits, sure. but he sure. would, he said, you know, he's like, the Brits are so uh, technically sound. And, and he said, and yet I prefer Pacino's Richard because it's got such flesh and blood in it. And there was such a search, there was such, and, and I don't know if you ever saw Looking for Richard, but it was, it was a, a documentary kind of about him searching for the character. And it was really cool. It was kind of, you, you really, uh, actually actors that are listening should go check this out. It was from, I don't know, the late nineties or early two thousands. And, and you really see an actor just digging, 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 digging. But I remember that's kind of what you're talking about. It was this, it's this, the difference between, and, and neither side is is right nor wrong. And it's also not saying Pacino doesn't have incredible technique as well. And it's not saying McClellan doesn't have incredible, mm-hmm. you know, heart and guts. It's just overall, it's just two different styles. And it's kind of like, it, it's it's what you're saying about the, the studied, classically trained musician, the, the kind of street musician who comes up, who's, you know, maybe they started in their garage. And it's like, at the end of the day, it's all expression. And mm-hmm. some people are going to like this one better and some people are going to like that one better. And what I think is cool about what you do is you took, you came from really one far end of the spectrum and melded it with the other far end of the spectrum. And when you put it together, uh, it, you know, I just think it's it's so unique. And, and I'm looking, I'm looking at the time. It's a little after an hour. Okay. We kind of go, I kind of, you know, this, we go long sometimes or whatever. I don't know what your time constraints are, but I see that piano back there and I'm like, yeah. there's so much more to go. Like, I, I think there's so much more to mine in your story. I also think for the sake of this, I got, I got like three little questions for you. And then I think it would be cool if you want to, or you have the capabilities there to do. I can, yeah. Is to kind of end it with you playing, whether it's Lincoln Park, because we talked about it so much, or really anything of your your choosing. I remember hearing the Nirvana. I thought that was I'll cool. I'll play that one. I'll play Nirvana. The Nirvana? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want. It's totally your call, but I just think it'd be I'm cool. I'm totally going to play it. Yeah. yeah, awesome. I, yeah. I think it'd be cool for people that are listening, and if you've hung mm-hmm. this far with us, you get to hear that it's... It, because we're, we're, you know, we're speaking up here in... Uh, philosophically, but when you actually hear it, you're like, holy shit, this is just, it's so electric to me. And it's why I came across the room and introduced myself to you. It was just, it was so pure, you know? Um, ha, sorry. I'm like, I, I'm much, it's, much it's, love, man. Yeah. You, yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's great. We're chasing I, the same lights. Yeah. Um, so, so here's, here's a question. Um, I kind of asked these three at the end of all of these and, and just interested to hear your take on them. Uh, the word no means, means what to you? How do you translate it? Fetish. Explain that to me. I don't know if I get it. Like, no, the defiance, the core of defiance. I'm talking about when we say no to ourself, like what we talked about in our thread here with regards to, to telling the dragon no 
I'm not going to let you devour me. I know you're hungry. No, we'll find something else. And so I call it fetish because it becomes like this sort of visceral high. You know, the power to say no is the beginning of your freedom, discipline. Any discipline, the core of it is no. And then later on, one thing that's really powerful about no is understanding when it comes from the outside towards you. Like, for instance, if a company or, say, a employer says no, like you want to get that job or that space, and they say no, <laughs> realizing that that's part of the environment. That's really part of the ecosphere. You know, lions and tigers are out there and the antelope are out there. And in order to keep the animals from overgrazing and maybe, you know, catching a disease and then you know, killing off the whole population, the predators are out there and they're, you know, they're, they, they, they don't have much to eat. And so then it's this whole thing that's going on between the lions and the antelope and one is part of the other's biosphere. And there's a, obviously a, a primitive quality to it, a brute quality, but yet, you know, that's the dance. And so similarly, you know, when I don't get that gig or I didn't get that or whatever, it's like, Wow, looking back on it, it was important that I got that no. It was important that the game stay healthy. You know, it's important that I realize, okay, just because they said no doesn't make them some bad person, first of all. You know, maybe they're usually being told no is doing me a favor whether i realize it or not yeah so again that's why i start to say that's why my first reflex was like fetish because that's an opportunity for me to learn something about myself like i start to like have a distaste for yes you know that was the reason that i started getting into chess so much because everybody's like, oh, yeah, man, you sound great. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. There's been so many times in situations where I've heard yes, and it's been duplicitous or it's been not quite accurate. When I think of the times that I've been told no, even if I felt the no was unfair or unwarranted, I learned so much from it. Yeah. And then when I learned how to, there's been so many times where I said yes to myself and I was allowing some kind of poor behavior or dysfunctional behavior. But then when I learned how to say no to myself and when I learned how to say no to others at a certain point, yeah. setting my own boundaries through knowledge of self, the world turns from those no's I mean, they certainly prepare you for the yes that you want. 
the more preferred. When Elvin looked at me, it was a type of no. Yeah. But, but it was even, it was so powerful. He made me want to say no to myself to ever do that again. Yeah. That's... He gave me the clarity to make that decision. Do you want to say yes to this again, Eric? Or do you want to say no to that? Here's what you did. Here's how I allowed myself to look for your lesson number one. Now, do you want to trick Elvin Jones again? Is this how you want to play the music? Or do you not want to do that? That's it so... doesn't matter that we're in Poland. None of that matters. Yeah. You said you want to be a master, right? I know why you're here. Do you really want it? Yes or no? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so that, you got to say no to the little things to get the big thing sometimes. Right. So that, that, that's that's what I mean yeah. when I, when I uh, you know, perhaps, you know, that word, I mean, I don't know if fetish. No, no, I, a, I get it. I, I'm so glad I asked you because I, if I had just said, uh-huh, uh-huh, and kept going, I wouldn't have known. And now hearing what you're saying, I... I love that whole diatribe you just gave on no and and I've heard I've heard versions but I've never quite heard it put that way that you just put it and to the point where I want to go back there was something you said at the beginning that I can't when you said it I said oh wow that's a new way of that's a, a new way of seeing it and right now it's escaping me what exactly it was that you said but it just I'm glad I asked because I didn't when you said fetish I'm like what what do you mean I have no <laughs> idea what you mean but do you have any mantra that kind of gets you through things any any go to my high school band director you know I was never I went to school like way out of district so I was living in Camden in the hood, but because I was at one point started getting in trouble in school, I had to go to school in the suburbs, which was like 40 miles away. So we had like a fake address and all this kind of stuff like that. So I was going to school, essentially, you could say illegally per se, uh, way out of district. And that's when I first got around like metalheads and stuff like that, because, you know, I come from the hood. So there was no heavy metal going on around there. When I started going to the school in the suburbs, I'm seeing kids with mega death shirts on dead presidents, like all this kind of stuff like that. And so misfits. And so, um, I'm sorry, dead Kennedys and misfits, not dead presidents, dead Kennedys, dead presidents, like a rap group. <laughs> um, so, uh, I never joined the band because I didn't want to be after school and all that stuff. And besides I was on a, a, a trajectory to be like, be like a hardcore musician. And most high school players aren't really that super serious about, being hardcore musicians, you know? So I was like kind of snobbish about that <laughs> in preparation for conservatory. Yeah. But my senior year, because of this sort of conspiracy, because my mother was friends with this guy that had just become the new band director. She didn't like the previous band director, but this new band director, everybody wanted to see him do good. And it was the classic sports story where I'm this, you know, home run machine that's does not want to play baseball and so there's a big plot to get me to join the band and so eventually they managed to weasel weasel me into the band and get me to join it and we win everything we win the state championship we win the whole thing and that said there was something he was still a great i mean his band directing changed my life too. He was a great teacher, a great master, 
His name is Bill Gardner. Sorry, Bill Garten. Sorry, Bill Garten. Um, and uh, he said, he always would say, and it was pretty cool because he would say something that is for your general suburban jazz band, yet it was so deeply American and so deeply true and sportsmanly true. It got me too, even with my snobby elitist task. <laughs> he would say, if it is to be, it is up to me. If it wow. is to be, it is up to me. So that's a mantra that kicks in for me. That's a rhyme right there. If it is to be, it's up to me. And that really clarifies situations. So yeah, big or small, if it is to be, it is up to me. Inch yeah. by inch, inch by inch, it's a cinch. Yard by yard, it's too hard. But if it is to be, it is up to me. I love that. It's kind of like the cavalry isn't coming. You got to get it. You, you got to, right. you got to do it. No one else is going to do it for you. Audie Murphy. I love it. I, okay. One last question before I let you play here. Um, if you could give your younger self advice, what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? That's a difficult one. Let's see. You know, I, I cannot completely say I would ever intervene in anything that has happened when it comes to my art form, when it comes to my pursuit of this thing. There have been pro probably a couple or more personal episodes in my private life that I, if I could do a time machine and intervene, I would intervene and break something down to my past self real quick about some decision making. However, none of that really spills over into the music and the art because I've needed to survive my mistakes. I needed that look from Elvin. I needed that look. I needed those panic attacks. I needed that depression. Elu is the product. Basically, if you think of an oyster, where the pearls come from, or is it a clam? I think clam is actually where the pearls come from. But you know what I mean? A pearl is a collection of irritants that, that the clam sifts through in its lifetime. 
the pearl ultimately kills the clam. We say harvest, which is pretty euphemistic and brutal, but the pearl that we treasure and polish and cultivate and wear to show beauty and status, luster, all that, that is all the things, all the blues, all the suffering, all the pain, all the mistakes, all the irritants that that clam's life experienced. So similarly, my art, my legacy is my pearl. So to take away, intervene, stop some of those irritants from happening would take away from my pearl. And that ultimately would deprive my audience of perhaps that particular touch that that one person who's thinking about jumping off of a bridge later, let me check out this dumb concert and then I'm definitely gonna jump off of that bridge or that building that pearl that I'm putting out there, I would hope I aim it for those or that person. Fortunately, hopefully, well, maybe someday someone will walk up to me and say that I helped them in that moment. But chances are it happened and I don't know about it. I'd but say so. I take, I take comfort in knowing that it's in there. Yeah. It's in my pearl. It's in there, you know? So it's hard to, and, and I mean, you know, it's even with the personal stuff, you know, it's hard to say that I would necessarily intervene. I guess the only, the greatest motivation to want to intervene in anything would be that I hurt someone else. Mm-hmm. That would be something that I would want to intervene and prevent. But short of that, not not so much. Well, it's kind of a trick question because I always ask it. And as as people start to answer, a lot of them stumble upon that same thing. And I'm always like, you would go back. The irony is that 16-year-old version or whatever is like, get out of here, old man. Like, you know, nobody wants to hear. The, the, and, and also, you know, exactly what you're saying is the point of this show. 10,000 knows failure is opportunity. All of these all of these things that we perceive as setbacks in the moment, as challenges, every single one of them makes us who we are. And our life is the compilation of a series of challenges and no's and, and how we overcame them is who we are and what our art is, in my opinion, you know, and you just put that in a way more beautiful, articulate way than I will put it. But I, I share the same sentiment. And I just got to say, before you go play, I just want to thank you because you are, you know, we don't know each other. I met you. I came up to you. As far as I know, you're like, yeah, who's this guy that we're doing this with? Like, you know, he came up to me where? And you are so honest and present. I feel like this has been such an honest, present. uh, You've really given all these questions thought. And it's, it's no mistake that your art is what it is when I sit and talk with you. And I'm like, man, this guy's just like, he's not going anywhere. 
I don't get the feeling that he's like rushing off the the Zoom or whatever the hell we're on. He's he's just here. We're present, and it's beautiful. And I and I really just I want to thank you for that. And 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 by the time people got to this, I also will in the introduction have given them all the amazing things and the amazing people you've met. Because what I love is like none of that stuff from like the the press packet came up in here. It doesn't have to. That's the that's the spoils of the work and the heart and the art. And that's more what I'm interested in. And I just really appreciate the way you spoke, man. It's really, Amen. really awesome. I love it. Much love. I, I appreciate you having me and, and, and speaking with me and asking me these kinds of things and, you know, giving me a, a way to, a, a, an opportunity to, to communicate it and share it. And also I've actually, and I, I've, I'm a fan of yours from afar. I've, I've actually seen your work and I definitely appreciate it and, and enjoy oh, it. Cool. So that's cool you know, to hear. It's like, Oh, this, this, this is that cat, you know, so, you know, much love right back at you on the professional tip too. Thank you very much. Thank you. What we do here is go back, 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 back. All right. Again, I know this was a long one today, but there were still some tidbits that we left on the editing floor. Also, Elu played for me that day and we have video of it. So if you were blown away by what he said, go check out the video on our Instagram feed at 10,000 knows or our new YouTube channel. But for now, let's go to my top three takeaways. Number one, we all have light and dark within us. We need to use both parts. And once that dragon wakes up, you have to learn how to tame it because it's part of you. And it can either be your greatest enemy or your greatest friend. If you don't tame it, it'll tear you apart. Don't be afraid of the stuff inside of you. Learn to accept it and learn to use it. Number two, the importance and value of great mentors. For my stupid ass, young ass, he turned the whole beat around to save me so that I wouldn't look stupid. In this story, it would have been easy for Elvin to make Elu look like a fool or look stupid on stage, but he saved him. And then he gave him a legendary look, which communicated so much. Through kindness and through humility, Elvin demonstrated what it truly meant to be a master through his actions, rather than peacocking around and diminishing Elu's sense of self-worth. Number three, you are the only person who decides what your life will be like. If it is to be... It is up to me. Don't wait around for someone to give you your shot at life. It's up to you to take the damn shot yourself. All right, that's it. Huge thanks to Elu for sitting down. I hope the rest of you felt inspired. If you did, we'd love it if you share this podcast so it can make a difference in more people's lives. Leave a review or take a screenshot on your phone and post it to your social media. Tag us at 10,000 Knows and at Maddie Dell so we can thank you. Connect with us at 10,000knows.com and get added to our mailing list. It's simple to do and we'd love to have you. A reminder, we put out short solo Monday morsels at the beginning of the week and we're back here every Friday for the longer interviews. As always, have a great week and thanks again for listening. Yeah.